In your Bible today, turn there, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter number 2. If you have God's Word with you this morning, Ephesians, chapter number 2. Ordinarily, I have you stand and read, a, read the text passage with me. I'm not going to use a text per se today. I'll just come to the passage and read it here in a few moments um, because the nature of the message uh, I'll not begin with a, a textual reading. The subject, though, today is the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The series of messages that I'm bringing to you is entitled, Meet the Holy Spirit. It's been a number of years since I brought an entire series of messages on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this time I'm trying to focus on who He is, who He is, and secondly, what He does. And I want to very briefly review, because I want those of you who haven't been here, I'd like to catch you up a little bit. Number one, we ought to begin with the point that the Holy Spirit is God. He is deity. He is one member of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He has all the attributes and marks of a divine being. Everything that you can say about God the Father, you can say about the Son, and you can say about the Holy Spirit. They are three in one, as we often say. But not only is He God, He is a personal being. A gentleman came to me after the services, I think last week or the week before, and he said something like this. I've been hearing you say that the Holy Spirit is a person. And uh, what does that mean? And so we talked about it for a few moments. What I mean by that, and to make it very clear, because it is a little difficult to grasp, because we think of a person as being in a body. And the Holy Spirit is not a fleshly being. He's a spirit being by definition, obviously. I mean by that, that he has the marks of personhood. Usually we define personhood as being an ability to think, the mind, intellect. We think of a person as having emotion, feeling, and we think of a person, thirdly, as having a will or volition that a person can determine choices. They can make choices. That a person can act or not act, as the case may be. In all of those ways, the Holy Spirit is a personal being. He thinks, he acts, he feels, he has emotion. I'd go into the details of that, but I, but I don't have time. What I really want you to understand, though, when I say the Holy Spirit is a person, I want you to understand He is more than a force. He's more than the force in Star Wars. He's more than just raw power. He is more than just an influence. He is a personal being who thinks, who feels, and who moves, who acts. Now, he's active throughout the whole Bible. We meet him on the second verse of the Bible. The Spirit of God moved upon the waters back there in that earliest stage of the universe. 
And we see him acting then throughout the entire Old Testament, coming and going up on people who carry out his purposes. Then we come to the New Testament, we see a much fuller orb, a more full participation of the Holy Spirit in his works with humanity. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the emphasis is upon his indwelling. He is the indwelling Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 says that when we are saved, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not an experiential thing. I've had people say to me, well, I never felt anything or I never experienced anything. No, you won't and don't expect that. We would set you up for disappointment if I told you that this was some sort of second experience or second work of grace in your life. No. But at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, takes up residence in my heart, in my being, in my body. And He lives there until the day that my spirit lives because He comes into my spirit. Now today, let's learn some new things here and get some information that I trust will touch your heart and help you with your, your life. Number one this morning, if you're taking notes with me, our condition before salvation. Before I can tell you the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, I need to tell you what we're like before we're saved. So we read today in the book of Ephesians, chapter number two and verse number one. And you hath he quickened. Quicken is the old KJV word for to make alive. I've told you many times, but all of you weren't here. When a woman is pregnant, sometimes the doctor will ask her, have you felt quickening? Have you felt movement? Have you felt life within your womb? Or we'll say, I broke off my fingernail down to the quick we don't mean your fingernails fast. <laughs> we mean you broke it off down to where it's alive and you really feel it, don't you? Now, when you read the, the word quickening in the Bible or quick, it's just alive. You hath he made alive, we could read, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sin. What is the condition of a person spiritually before they get saved? The Bible describes it. This is really an important verse. Maybe underline it in your Bible. They are dead in trespasses and sins. And then go down with me to verse number five. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, says verse five. So twice here in just a few verses, and there are other verses we could turn to, twice in just this very brief passage of Scripture, the Word of God says that the condition of a person before salvation is that they are dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, that we could just really get hold of that because that is such an important and powerful concept. Your unsaved friend, your non-Christian family member, is spiritually dead according to the Word of God here. Now, the word dead, however, means different things to different people. The word dead 
can either mean annihilation, that just nothing is there, nothing exists, or I believe the word is used in a word as it's used here means to be separated. Almost every time I preach a funeral, I explain this to the people at the funeral service. Your loved one's body lies here in this box in front of me. However, at the moment of their passing, if they were a Christian, their soul, spirit, part of their being, went to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So what does it mean when we say your loved one is dead? It simply means that the body has been separated from the soul and the spirit. That's such a vital concept. Please get it today. Death means separation. In fact, if you look up those words in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, you'll find it means separation. So when a person dies physically, their body and soul and spirit are separated from each other. Now, it also has a spiritual meaning. When Adam sinned, his, he was separated from Almighty God. Do you remember that to picture that, the Lord even drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? And I want you to open your Bible and, and turn it there to the book of Genesis. It's real quick, and you can find it. Go to the beginning, and then go back over to chapter number two. And let me show you what God said to Adam and Eve on that day uh, when he was warning them. Actually, he said it to Adam. He is warning Adam. And in verse number 17 of chapter number two, God says, Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. Well, did he? And you say, well, didn't, I didn't read about that. Did he die? Did God tell him the truth? He absolutely spoke the truth. In the day that he ate that fruit, he died spiritually, and he became separated from God. No longer could he go down into the garden and walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. His sins were now a barrier that had come between him and his Creator. And he, he died spiritually that day. Now, I think that's what Ephesians 2 and 1 means. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, not intellectually dead, not psychologically and emotionally dead, certainly not physically dead. Adam lived for hundreds of years after that, but he's spiritually dead. He is separated from Almighty God by the sin, his disobedience, and his rebellion. And he continued to function, as I said, physically and emotionally and intellectually, but he's spiritually dead toward Almighty God. He's separated from him. Now, he was not annihilated, you see. That's not the word. He's separated from God. Look over in chapter 3 and verse 10. Let me show you what dead people can do. <laughs> Chapter 3 and verse 10, he's spiritually dead because they've already sinned by the time we get to verse 10. But dead people can hear. 
I heard your voice in the garden. Dead people can respond emotionally. I was afraid because I was naked. Dead people still can feel a sense of shame. They have a conscience that is still active in their life. And he said, in spite of that, or it says then, that I hid myself. Now, Romans chapter 1, which we go to frequently in recent months, but turn there, and I'm, I'm requiring you to work with me here today, but I want you to get hold of this because it's so important to our subject. Romans chapter 1 is describing the state of the pagan world before God, the state of the pagan world, how lost and how depraved that the pagan world without God actually is. And we come down to chapter 1, and I read verse 19, because that which may be known of God by the pagans is manifest or demonstrated in them. For God hath showed it unto them. And he even goes further in verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Circle the words clearly seen in your Bible. Clearly seen. In other words, unsaved people can perceive the truth of the gospel. They can understand things about God. Though they are spiritually separated from God, it has not put them in a position where they cannot hear and understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've done the preliminary work. Let's go to John chapter number 3 now. John chapter number, uh, pardon me, John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And this was the subject last week, but I want to, I want to bring this together real clearly in your mind so that you will just have a very one, two, three simple understanding of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in your salvation and in everyone else's salvation. So here are people dead in trespasses and sins, separated from Almighty God, the description of the unsaved world. If you're an unsaved person here this morning, or you're an unsaved person listening on television, do you know what God says about you? He says you're dead in trespasses and sins. You are dead to him. Now, we go to John 16, where we were last week, and in verse number 8, it's describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unsaved people. When he has come, says verse 8, he will reprove, or we would say convict, or another word would be convince, or even prove. When he has come, he will reprove, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And the next three verses give us a little bit more detail. The Holy Spirit convicts in three specific areas God's Word speaks to here. Verse 9, he convicts of the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. That's the first one. So an unsaved person hears the gospel. And what's the first thing the Holy Spirit does he begins to convict that dead in trespasses and sins human being. And he convicts them by, of their unbelief. He says to their soul, you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The message of the gospel is a true message. Don't you miss it? In verse number 10, he convicts of righteousness. And the idea there is he convicts us of the need for righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. And the Bible says Abraham believed God, and when he did, it was counted unto him for righteousness. The righteousness that will save you is the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God will clothe a sinner with once that person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I always liken righteousness to our clothing because in the Bible, over and over, righteousness is presented as being a robe or a garment of some kind. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, when we trust in him, God takes all the goodness, the righteousness, the majesty of Jesus Christ, and he clothes that sinner with that righteousness. And the problem that humanity has, the problem of religious and good moral people is that they are trying to impress God with their own righteousness. And the old prophet in the Old Testament said, said these words, your righteousnesses, plural, all the good deeds that you do in the sight of God, they're like filthy rags. God will not accept those rags of righteousness. The righteousness that God wants is he wants me by faith to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I do, he clothes me in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church. That is what salvation is in a nutshell. I believe in Jesus Christ and God clothes me in the righteousness of his son. And so that's what verse 10 is talking about. So the Holy Spirit convicts me of my need to believe, of my need for faith, of my need for the righteousness that only God can give to me. And then, if you will, in verse number 11, of coming judgment. The world's not thinking about judgment today. The world is, their mind is far from it. And yet, in reality, we never know how close we can be to standing before Almighty God. And of course, there will be those days of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 for the unbeliever. But all of us, no matter who we are, good or bad, young or old, righteous or unrighteous, we will stand before Almighty God one day and give an account of the things that we've done in this life. It is appointed unto man wants to die, and after that, God's judgment. Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, look up here for a moment. Listen to me. No one can be saved without the Holy Spirit convicting them of this. You see, God has blessed me by enabling or allowing me, I should say, by allowing me to preach the gospel now for all these years and to thousands and thousands of people, but they don't all get saved. And you sit here and watch me plead with people on Sunday mornings, come and receive Jesus Christ. Why don't they come? Well, there's a multitude of reasons people don't come, but sometimes they're not convicted. You see, we tend to look at this thing from the human side, I'm afraid, far too often. A dead man is not going to respond to the gospel without 
the Holy Spirit coming and really deeply convicting him that he needs to believe that he needs the righteousness of God applied to his life. And he needs to understand that judgment is coming. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Paul meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road of Damascus. You know this story. And it says that Paul was pricked, I'm quoting, pricked in his conscience. Pricked in his conscience. That's the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit. He met Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes and says, Paul, this is he that you've been fighting. Believe in him. You need his righteousness, not the righteousness of the law. Later on in chapter 24, Paul was preaching to a man. He's a king. His name is Felix. Felix. And you know, Paul preaches to him. And when he does, old Felix, the king, heard Paul in the Bible, says he's trembling. A king with all his political power, armies at his command, and here's a simple gospel preacher, and he's trembling? Why would a king tremble in the presence of a preacher? Because the Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit was there that day. But he didn't receive Christ. He turned Paul away. And the Bible says Paul reasoned with him, pled with him, and he trembled. But he didn't believe. Here's my point to you, ladies and gentlemen. Don't mistake being convicted for being converted. The two are different. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit is the initial coming of the Holy Spirit. And he strives with you, and he tries, he works, he pleads, he urges you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't mistake conviction for conversion. I've watched people come here. I've watched them grip the front of that, the top of that pew till their knuckles would almost glow. I've seen people stand here and weep and tears run down their faces and not come. They were convicted, but they were not converted. They didn't come to Christ. Now go back a few pages. John chapter 3 in your Bible, please. And I'm attempting to put all this together for you. John chapter 3. And one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible, but it tells me about the work of the Holy Spirit in my salvation and in your salvation. Okay, so the first point is our condition before salvation. Second point is the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for Christ. And our third point is the Holy Spirit regenerates us. John chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's read some of this to give us a good understanding of the text here or the passage. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Actually, he's a rabbi himself. And the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. 
Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a passage of Scripture. Mark it in your Bible. Except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. George Whitfield, the great, great evangelist who preached up and down the East Coast here. He was from England, but he would come over here and preach in the pre-revolutionary war days. In fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin writes in his autobiography about going to visit and hear, um, hear Whitfield preach in Philadelphia. And he was amazed at, at the man. He preached in his lifetime, it is said by his biographers, that Whitfield preached 2,000 times on that one verse of Scripture right there. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And people would say to George Whitfield, why do you always preach on ye must be born again? And Whitfield's answer was, because you must be born again. (laughs) Good answer, huh? And 2,000 times, once he was old and sick, he opened the gable door to the second floor of the building where he was staying. And they announced that Whitfield's going to preach. He pulled himself up to the window or just the open space. He was wrapped in a blanket, sitting in a chair, and a crowd gathered outside there, 100 or so people, and they said, will you preach to us once again the Word of God? And what did he preach? You must be born again. Well, if you don't get anything else out of the service today, get a hold of that, my friend. Now, what does that, though, have to do with the Holy Spirit? Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He asked a question here, a very logical question, doesn't he? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born which tells you that very religious people can be very ignorant of God's plan, can't, can't they? He's, he's thinking of this in a, in, a, in a physical sense. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, boy, that's, that is a very highly contested passage. Some people say the water refers to the water in the mother's womb before a child is born. In other words, he has to be born physically, then born again spiritually. Other people interpret that like this. They say that's the water of baptism. And so you've got to be baptized, and then you've got to be born of the Spirit of God. Other people would interpret it and say, no, that is the water of the Word of God. Sometimes in the Bible, the Word of God is likened unto water. Ephesians 5, 26, you're cleansed by the washing of the Word. Phrases like that. I'm, I, I'm not sure about some of these interpretations. I'm very sure that a couple of them I don't think are true. But I tend to think, according to Titus, the book of Titus, chapter number 3 and verse 5, it refers to the washing of regeneration. I don't know that it refers to water, certainly not requiring baptism for salvation. I know it doesn't mean that. I don't think it means the water in the mother's womb before birth because I don't think that's 
pertinent to the whole discussion here. I think it means either the Word of God and the Spirit, or it may just mean the process of salvation, regeneration by the Word of God, or regeneration by the Spirit of God. And so either way, I see that the Holy Spirit is involved in this. Because in verse 5, note it and mark it in your Bible, except you be born of water and of the Spirit, capital S, deity, the Holy Spirit. He cannot see the kingdom of God, the absolute necessity of being born again. Now, born again is the common term. That's That's the term you and I use when we're standing around talking together after church. If you go to Bible college or seminary, they're going to use a big word. It's called regeneration. What's the difference? None. They mean the same thing. So just keep on talking about being born again. You don't need to know all the theological terms unless you want to know them. But here's the definition. And maybe in the margin of your Bible there, define what born again means. It means to regenerate. It means that God imparts life, spiritual life, into a spiritually dead person. God imparting life into a person who is spiritually dead. It is not God adding something to you. It is, remember, when Adam sinned, his spirit died. He's separated from God. There's no more fellowship with God. He's driven from the garden. He can't walk and talk with the Lord and fellowship with Him. Now, when I hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts. Now, follow me sequentially here. This can happen in an instant, but this is what is involved. I hear the gospel. I hear the word. I hear the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit comes And he convicts me of my need to believe, of my need for the righteousness of Christ, of my need to be prepared for the coming judgment that we will all face. The Holy Spirit convicts me of that. And then I say, Lord Jesus, I submit my life to you. I receive you now by faith, and I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and he moves in. Here's what I want you to see. He regenerates. He imparts the life of God into that new believer instantly, miraculously, supernaturally. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 says it like this. Now you are partakers, you're partakers of the divine nature. If you are a Christian today, whether you know it or realize it or think about it or have ever been taught, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ, the divine life of God came into you. And the Holy Spirit will be there from now until you're taken into the very presence of Almighty God, born again, regenerated, God imparting divine life. Now listen to me. I hope I, the Lord will give me 
the right words to say this to you. In my opinion, this is why we've got so much problem today in evangelical Christianity. We've got a mess. We've got 70 or 80 or 90 million people across America claim to be Christians. But they don't live like Christians. They don't think like Christians. They don't act like Christians. Their value system is the value system of the world. They have no holy aspirations. They don't want to worship. They worship out of duty in many cases. They worship God very irregularly. They have no devotional life. They don't read the Bible and pray on any kind of regular basis. They're not instilling in their children the, the, the Christian values that we all know to be true. They give a, a, a lip service to it. You know what is the problem? And, and I don't want to be judgmental in what I say, but I, I, I want to be God's man speaking truth. The problem is, have they really got the, 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 the divine nature of God indwelling them? Or did they just join the church and get baptized? Did they just make a profession of faith? Did they kind of acknowledge their head uncomfortably when the preacher's around? Yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I know this isn't feel-good preaching, but you are going to meet the Lord one day, my friend, and, and you've got to be prepared for that day, and I'm your friend to tell you that. Don't you understand that? You must be born again. It doesn't say you must make a decision. People say to me every week, oh, I've done that. I wish I could find a way to say it so they wouldn't be able to say to me, I've done that. I'm not talking about walking down the aisle and shaking my hand. I'm not talking about just praying a sinner's prayer. That's the man side of it. Yes, you ought to do that, but there's something else there. You've got to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to convict you of your sin, and he has to come in. There has to be true saving faith there somewhere. Somewhere. It's such a mystery. Look at what Jesus said in verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, wherever it wills, wherever it wants to go. Nobody tells the wind where to go. And you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it came from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. He says this thing of being born again is, is a very spiritual thing. It's a very mysterious thing. Because it's a supernatural thing. We can't control it like the wind. We don't control the wind. We just get in front of it if we can. Others have compared it to the mystery of a, of, of a physical birth, a human birth. That somehow mysteriously, I don't even know if medical science today can tell us how miraculous a birth is. That an egg and a sperm come together and suddenly there's a new life. A new creation, a new being. And the Holy Spirit of God and the gospel come together in a person's life. They hear the gospel. And I trust in Jesus Christ. By grace are you saved through faith. And then new life comes in. I'm regenerated. And you know what happens? It produces a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. It produces a new nature. I'm not just now controlled by the flesh. 
that I also have within me the Spirit of God residing. It gives me a new heart, Ezekiel chapter 36 says. And it gives me eternal life. He that believeth in him shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. Isn't that good? Oh, man, that's wonderful stuff there. And there's just one condition. What's the condition? Ephesians 2, 8, by grace are you saved through faith. Faith meaning to trust, meaning to put your confidence and reliance upon, as I so often tell you. Now, again, I want you to think of salvation being a five-step process. That's the simplest way to explain it. One, a person hears and understands the gospel. Number two, they're convicted of their sins. The Holy Spirit says, you need that in your life. Number three, they trust in Christ. Faith. That's the only thing that a human being can do. Fourth, they are regenerated. They're born again. And fifth, the Holy Spirit indwells them as long as they live on this earth. Let me just make one more quick point because it is related to it and it's such a good time to do it. I want you to go back with me to the book of Mark, or Matthew, pardon me, Matthew chapter 12 because people will often ask me, Pastor, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, it's related to this matter of the Holy Spirit's work, His role in our salvation. And in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus has been doing these miracles, and the Pharisees have come, and they've, they've said publicly, He's doing those miracles with the power of the devil. He, Satan is the power in the life of Jesus Christ to do these wonderful things you're seeing. And what does Jesus say? I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoso speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or in the world to come. The word blasphemy has the idea of insulting the sacred. That's a di dictionary definition. Blasphemy is to insult something that's sacred. And these men, by what they said, had insulted the Holy Spirit of God, the power Jesus was using for those miraculous deeds. And Jesus said, you guys have just committed a sin that will not be forgiven in this life or in the life to come. Now, I personally don't think you and I today are in danger of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the same way these men were. For this reason, Jesus is no longer here doing miraculous things. So you can't, you can't commit an exact replica of that. However, I want to give you a warning, and I want to tell you to be very, very careful. 
and, your, and, and what you say and what you do. Because, you see, we can ins- insult the Holy Spirit. There's a way I can insult the Holy Spirit by ignoring Him, by neglecting Him. When He comes and convicts me of my sin, that I say, no. And I think in time that becomes its own insult to Him. In Genesis 6 and 3, it was said about the antediluvians in the days of Noah. God said when he looked down upon the world, it was so evil, and he had repeatedly warned them through Noah, who preached, as you remember, he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. And God said to them, I've had it with you. My spirit shall not always strive with men. My spirit, you see, grace is not unlimited. The day of grace can end. It was ended then when God shut the door. But Noah found grace. But other people found judgment. In the book of Psalm number 95, Psalms number 95, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. People come and sit and listen to the preacher, the evangelist. They say, no, they harden their heart. Somebody works beside someone who witnesses to them and gives them tracts and shows them the plan of salvation. No, I'm not interested in that stuff. And they keep on saying no. And one day God says, my spirit will not strive. You're hardening your heart. What used to bring you to tears now no longer even moves you. Your conscience is seared. My friend, I warn you, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you obey Him. Don't you insult Him by repeatedly, time after time, saying no, no, no. Joseph Addison Alexander said it like this. There is a time I know not when. A line I know not where that marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.